All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am with a special guest today. We have Professor Nikki Swan on the show. Uh, Professor Swan's research focuses on how different parts of the human brain interact to generate and control movements and how these processes can be disrupted in disease. She's particularly interested in movement disorders like Parkinson's disease. To investigate these questions, Dr. Swan uses a combination of non-invasive and invasive electrophysiological methods in humans to record brain activity in both patients and healthy people. One goal of her research is to characterize neural signatures of disease to better understand pathophysiology and improve treatments. Dr. Swan graduated from UC Berkeley with a double major in molecular cell biology with a neurobiology emphasis and psychology. She then went on to complete her PhD in neurosciences at UC San Diego before completing a postdoc at UC San Francisco. She joined the human physiology department at the U of O in 2017. All right, Dr. Swan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So what, uh, what originally piqued your interest in, in neuroscience? Did you know that that was always kind of the career path that you wanted to take or, or what, what originally got you started? That's a great question. Um, I don't know that I like can pinpoint a specific moment when I really got interested in neuroscience. I, um, I always liked biology and that's really what I started out being interested in sort of all through, um, well, I guess through high school. Um, early on in my life, I wanted to be an actress um, before I realized I'm not that good at acting. Um, and then kind of in high school, upon realizing that, I sort of started shifting my focus and thinking about what else um, really interests me and kind of came to biology. And then um, I was sort of in my biology class in high school, and I just remember uh, the neurobiology section really being the most exciting to me. Um, and so when I started college, we had to pick an emphasis, the biology, I started as a biology major, um, had to pick an emphasis and neurobiology seemed like the most logical choice. So um, I think there's some people that sort of identify a calling early on and that's like, you know, the thing they want to do. For me, I feel like there's probably a lot of different things that I could have ended up doing that are really interesting, um, but I sort of found my way to this and, and it's... Um, it's really interesting and gratifying, um, but I can't really pinpoint an exact moment or experience that made me super excited about it. Sure, sure. And then just just before we we started uh, uh, recording, we we're just talking about the your specific interest in uh, the electrical uh, brain rhythms, the the brain waves. And so so tell me about uh, if you could just kind of like introduce that uh, uh, concept and then sort of where, where you've uh, gone with that, maybe like in your research? Yeah, so um, as sort of to give kind of a, a broad neuroscience review, when you're, you know, it, your brain is made up of um, different kinds of cells and some of those are brain cells or neurons. Um, and when they're active, they will generate these um, changes in electrical activity. And you can record some of those changes um, by, for example, putting an electrode somewhere near the brain or even on the, the scalp, um, which is one technique we use. Um, and then you can record these changes in electric field, which are generated by changes in neural activity. Um, so this 
maybe review for everyone, but just kind of recapitulate. Um, so when you do this, when you record from populations of neurons and just look at the raw signal, often what you'll see is that the signal will kind of go up and down and up and down kind of like a wave, um, sort of resembling like a sinusoid um, or a sine wave. And so um, that observation has led people to start kind of paying attention to these oscillations and even quantifying them. So using mathematical techniques to look at um, the amount of activity that correspond to sort of a wave that goes up and down at a certain rate. Um, so by using this technique, we've learned several things. So one thing that we've learned is that different uh, waves of different speeds, so how quickly the wave sort of goes up and down, um, kind of dominate in different parts of the brain, um, and that also they can be modulated by behavior. So I'm most interested in the motor system. And what we see in the motor system is that we have a lot of activity in the um, sort of 13 to 30 hertz range, meaning 13 to 30 cycles a second. So the wave kind of goes up and down 13 to 30 times per second. Um, and we often call that the beta range. And we see that when people move, you get these prominent changes in beta um, in everyone, in healthy people. Um, and, and as well as in patients, and so um, and when you look in motor areas. So um, that's one of the things that I'm really interested in is kind of understanding these, uh, these waveforms and um, trying to investigate how they may be important for how our brains actually work. So one idea is that these sort of oscillatory patterns could actually be a mechanism by which different parts of the brain may interact with one another. Um, and so that's one of the, the um, questions that we really try to examine in my lab. Got it. And specifically, so you had mentioned the, the beta rhythm and the, the sort of 13 to 30 hertz. Are you looking specifically at, at kind of the, 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 the frequency within that sort of a, that range as far as like whether, you know, producing more like lower beta, also uh, some people call it like SMR, uh, or rather, or, or compared to like more high beta, do you, do you look at like the differences between uh, the frequencies of beta produced? Um, that's one thing we look at. So sometimes we pay attention to uh, the, the sort of center of the frequency, exactly what frequency. Um, we also sometimes just look at the amount of activity um, or um, sometimes the phase, like if we can see differences in phase, like do certain things happen at the peak versus the trough. Um, so there's a lot of different features of the signal. Um, and then one thing that we've gotten really interested in lately is um, kind of looking at more um, kind of unconventional aspects of the signal. So traditionally, when people first started analyzing these signals in the frequency domain, you, the focus was really on those three things, like the amplitude of the signal, how much um, of this, for example, beta oscillation there was, the phase, so exactly what you know, phase of the signal was at the peak versus the trough, or um, as you mentioned, the center frequency. So where in this beta range, 13 to 30 hertz, there's a lot of different uh, points. Um, are we talking low beta, you know, 13, 14 hertz, or higher beta, 25, 26 hertz? Um, 
But in the last few years, there's really been a focus on some other aspects of the signal as well. So for example, we published a paper last year where we really focused on the shape of the beta waveform. So um, this is a feature that's really lost when you use a lot of the conventional signal processing techniques. So if you just run, for example, uh, Fourier transform, which is a mathematical technique where you can decompose a signal into different frequency ranges, kind of lose this information in the signal. But if you actually just look at the raw signal, what you'll notice is that even though there's aspects of it that really do look sinusoidal, like you'll see this repeating pattern of the waveform going up and down, it's not a perfect sinusoid. So one thing that you might notice is that sometimes the peaks, for example, might be pretty sharp and the troughs might be more rounded. Or sometimes you'll see that there's kind of a shift so that the whole signal kind of will be tilted to the right or the left. Um, and so we were, um, we used some methods uh, that another group had published to quantify those differences in shape. Um, and we were able to show that actually that differed as a function of disease. So we looked at patients with Parkinson's disease and we showed that patients um, with um, Parkinson's disease who were not on their medication, so who had worse symptoms, had sort of a greater asymmetry in this shape. So um, for example, the, um, the peak was sharper than the trough, so it kind of made like a, kind of like the letter M shape, a Greek M. Um, and there was also kind of a tilt, so the, um, the instead of the signal being symmetric where the rise and the fall were equally steep, there was kind of a tilt to one side where the, uh, the fall was steeper than the rise. So um, this was a sort of a asymmetry that we observed in the shape of the wave, the raw signal um, that you could see actually oscillating in beta in these patients. And then when the same patients took their medication, you could see this uh, asymmetry lessening. So the, the signal would kind of go back more to being more symmetrical. Um, so that's something that we've recently gotten really interested in is trying to look at novel ways to quantify these oscillations that are kind of outside of how um, traditionally they've been quantified mathematically. Well, and that's really interesting because, you know, from my understanding of, of the drugs or the medications to treat Parkinson's disease, you know, they work on, on, on dopamine. I mean, that's what they're mostly talked about is like the, the chemical effects of those drugs. But it's, it's really interesting to me that maybe, I guess, these drugs are also potentially exerting their effects uh, on an electrical level, too. Yeah, it is really interesting. So there's, um, there's uh, certainly some kind of connection there. Um, and I think the mechanism for how the neurochemical difference leads to this electrophysiological difference is still kind of unclear and whether or not the um, electrophysiology is kind of a downstream impact of the neurochemical change or whether it's, um, I mean, whether it's some kind of, we don't basically know whether the electrophysiology is causally important for the symptoms or if it's a kind of a signature or marker of something else. Um, but the basic idea is that what we see in Parkinson's disease is this excessive synchronization in beta. So um, within and between brain, stru brain structures, especially in the basal ganglia and motor areas, we see beta being kind of more synchronous. And um, somehow medications or other therapies like deep brain stimulation, which is a, 
uh, neurostimulation therapy that's used in Parkinson's disease, somehow these therapies reduce this excessive synchronization. And um, as you mentioned, the medical ther the uh, medication-based therapies typically target dopamine. Um, so there's some ideas that by um, kind of targeting this depletion of dopamine, there's a difference in the way that the neurons and some of the brain structures respond to that beta synchrony that um, can dampen this uh, propagation of this oscillation through the cortical basal ganglia loops. Um, but there's still some uncertainty about exactly what the mechanism might be. So there's certainly some missing pieces in there, kind of linking that neurochemistry to the, uh, to the electrophysiology. Um, and there's some modeling work that has been kind of used to try to fill in those gaps, but there's definitely still a lot of questions. Can you tell me about why excessive synchronization would be a bad thing? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, um, you know, that actually is something that I, I think was uh, maybe not intuitive when people first started thinking about this. So I think initially people observed the synchronization. Um, they knew it was happening. There were some really influential papers that suggested this could be a mechanism of neural communication, like a way to sync up brain areas that were far apart from one another. Um, and kind of a way to boost signals, um, if you kind of want to think of it that way. Um, and so I think like you kind of are alluding to, it was generally thought of as a good thing. Um, but I think the idea is that if you think of sort of brain areas being kind of excessively um, uh, kind of interconnected in resonating this uh, signal, um, there might be a, a difficulty in kind of breaking out of that rhythm. So in the motor system specifically, and I think this is actually some, a motif that probably goes in other systems as well, but I think it's very clear in the motor system and it's a system I love because the uh, output is so easy to observe. So um, in the motor system, what we see when people, when healthy people move is that you'll have this kind of um, uh, baseline beta activity and then when you need to move it'll actually decrease and then after you're done moving it'll increase again um, and so that actually fits really well with with sort of the story of Parkinson's disease where you see this excessive synchronization so the idea is that um, when you have this beta being excessively synchronized it might be harder for it to kind of decrease um, which is something that seems to um, perhaps need to happen with movement or, or maybe it's not causally important, but it certainly um, is associated with initiation of movement. And that is actually one of the key hallmark symptoms we see in Parkinson's disease. This is difficulty initiating movement. So that's one of the ideas is that when this beta activity is excessive, um, your brain just, the, the brains of these patients may have difficulty kind of breaking out of this inflexible pattern and that's really necessary to be able to dynamically change um, what's going on, to be able to dynamically change your behavior and adjust to changing stimuli, for example. So that's really still kind of a hypothesis, but I think that's how we're thinking about it. So the idea being that there's kind of an optimal level of synchronization. Um, at the same time, if you have no synchronization, then it might limit the ability for different parts of the brain to interact. So you need some interaction but too much can kind of um, 
cause you to become locked into this inflexible pattern. Okay. And what's your take on uh, like neuromodulation techniques to, to alter, say, the, the amount of beta? I mean, do you think like as far as, say, transcranial stimulation or, or like deep brain stimulation, is there any, any decent research that says that that may be effective in being able to, you know, say, modify uh, these beta rhythms, you know, particularly in patients, you know, suffering from something like Parkinson's disease? Yeah, so for, for deep brain stimulation, there definitely is. So um, there's several papers that show that, um, you know, applying the stimulation in the basal ganglia reduces the successive synchronization throughout the cortical basal ganglia loops, um, and that that correlates with an improvement of symptoms. So um, again, we don't know that it's the mechanism by which the symptoms improve, but it certainly is um, reflected in a, um, in a improvement of symptoms. So um, that's definitely been shown. So when you uh, modulate electrically, that, that, is, that has been shown um, using an invasive technique. Um, as a, uh, in terms of non-invasive uh, stimulation, so um, transcranial techniques, um, it's a little bit, uh, there, there have been some papers that have, you know, tried to modulate beta um, using transcranial techniques, um, and there has been some indications of some subtle changes in movement. Um, these are definitely more subtle, but that kind of fits with the idea that these transcranial approaches are also uh, not exerting the dramatic um, electrical changes. And then um, the other thing that there have been some papers um, that have looked at is actually trying to give people feedback to learn how to modulate their own beta. Um, so there's uh, been several papers where they give people feedback on beta. Um, you know, things like people will try to control a ball going up and down and the ball will be controlled by increasing or decreasing beta. And, um, you know, some things that we've learned from those studies are that people can, they can learn to modulate beta and that's, actually important because that's a technique that a lot of people are looking at for brain computer interface type approaches so um, probably because beta changes so much with voluntary movement it seems like it's a measure um, or at least sensory motor beta so motor beta changes so much with voluntary movement it seems like it's a measure which people have easier access to um, learning how to control um, probably because it's something we voluntarily uh, change all the time without realizing it. Um, and so um, there have been several papers that have shown that people can learn to control it. And then some um, papers that have also shown some, some changes to uh, motor performance based on this control. Um, again, they're usually not huge effects, um, but, um, they're usually also not huge electrical uh, sort of changes that people have been able to make. So um, it's certainly possible that with more training, people might be able to um, have, have more control, but, um, but it's not like sort of the, the large differences you see with a, compared to a technique like deep brain stimulation. Sure. Yeah, no, I was really surprised that, that you brought up like neurofeedback because that, that's something like I've worked with just with, with patients um, for the past couple of years, but it seems like something within the research community, there's still lots of, of skepticism 
and and uh, um, sort of uh, just non-consensus as far as whether it's effective or not? Yeah, I think um, whether it could be effective cl clinically is definitely an open question, um, or at least not, you know clinically to a degree that could be meaningful. Um, there's and and I and yeah, I agree with you that some of the the neurofeedback papers that um, that I've read or one that I was even a part of, um, they're generally um, you know not huge and generally the effects are pretty small, but I do think there's no question that we can learn to modulate these signals, and that's, um, again, been pretty well shown in the brain-computer interface field. Um, and so I think, you know, the question of can that really in, impact behavior is, is maybe a bit more open, but I think there's some, um, inf there's some suggestion that it can to at least some degree, although I don't know. I don't think that, you know, there's, uh, I, I don't. I don't think it's going to be a, a huge effect, or at least the evidence so far doesn't point to that. I would say that some of the hesitancy with researchers might stem from some of the like um, kind of uh, the products that are coming out that sort of um, advocate for neurofeedback, and some of the concerns that researchers have about sort of just marketing in general and kind of overselling products. So I think that always kind of makes researchers a little nervous. So that might be part of why people want to sort of temper expectations, um, because I don't think that any of the research suggests that, you know, you can learn to modulate beta and suddenly become like an NBA player or something. Um, so I think that's kind of what, you know, we want to make sure that people aren't interpreting it as. Got it. Well, Switching gears a little bit, uh, what tell me like what your your lab is either like currently working on or at least uh, was working on prior to when COVID hit. I'm not sure if you guys are still able to do the the research projects that that you were doing, but what sort of what sort of stuff are you guys working on? Yeah, great question. So um, we are definitely slowed down because of COVID, but some of the things that we um, were doing before, um, so at in the lab at University of Oregon, we were collecting EEG data, um, both in healthy people and in patients. Um, so in healthy people, we were doing a lot of experiments, looking at different kinds of motor tasks and trying to uh, see, um, especially different oscillatory patterns, um, how they, um, basically how they are modulated with uh, different kinds of motor behaviors. And I think we had a, we have a special interest in looking at some of these unconventional ways to quantify oscillatory activity, like what I was mentioning earlier, things like changes in waveform shape, um, interactions between different frequency bands, things like that. Um, so we had several experiments um, going that were related to that. Um, and that's a really nice uh, type of experiment because this was all again with EEG data, which basically involves, um, you know, putting a cap, kind of like a spoon cap on people's heads, attaching electrodes, and then reporting brain activity from the scalp. And it's nice because it's really safe. Um, and, you know, it, it has a lot of power, um, but really can be tested with anyone. Um, and so it's really a great way for, for example, undergrads to get involved in the lab. We have several undergrads that were doing their own experiments um, that they kind of could come up with ideas on their own and develop an experiment um, with my help to sort of test the question they're interested in. 
So that was what a lot of we had going on. Um, we also um, were testing some of these same behavioral tasks, some of these same motor tasks in patients. Um, so one of the studies we were just about to start uh, before COVID hit um, was looking at Parkinson's patients and trying to look at these patients over time. Again, looking at some of these um, sort of novel ways to analyze beta activity. Um, so we have some, you know, I, I mentioned last year we published this paper looking at waveform shape and showing that it related to Parkinson's disease. Um, but there's a lot of questions that still remain about this measure. So for example, is it consistent over time? If patients progress in their disease because Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disease, typically people um, continue to uh, worsen, unfortunately. Um, so can we actually see changes over time? And um, so the ultimate clinical goal is could we identify an electrophysiological signature um, which could potentially be like a biomarker for the disease? And if we could detect that with EEG, that would be really um, powerful because it's such a safe um, and relatively affordable method. So it could be something that's used you know, by, you know, with lots more research and lots more of an understanding, it can potentially be used uh, sort of by clinicians to get an objective measure of disease severity. Um, and I think that could be especially useful for, for example, patients that might not be as able to come to the doctor frequently, um, people who live in remote areas, or now um, for telehealth approaches, because um, EEG is a, a technique where, you know, because it's so safe, because it's so affordable, you could imagine sort of wearable devices that could be made and patients could just put on in their in their homes and sort of they could get like a, a quick readout of their brain activity that reflected their um, their degree of symptoms that could potentially be clinically useful information so i mentioned this one waveform shape measure um, there's a few other measures that we think are related to parkinson's disease and so this study we were about to start was going to look over time at patients and kind of look at the reliability of these different signatures and then try to see if we could use some um, machine learning techniques to actually figure out which of these signatures or a combination of signatures might be the best sort of marker of Parkinson's disease. Um, can you tell me more about uh, what some of those other uh, potential signatures are? Yeah, so the ones that we were most interested in, so the the waveform shape is one of them. Um, another measure is looking at the interaction between beta phase and high frequency amplitude. So um, there's some evidence that high frequency activity like above 50 hertz, um, often called gamma activity, um, is a surrogate for neural firing. So it actually reflects so this asynchronous uh, neural firing kind of like um, populations of ac action potentials being active. Um, and so what's been observed both with invasive recordings and we've also seen with EEG is that the, this um, high frequency activity actually is modulated by the phase of the beta activity. Um, I shouldn't say that. It, we don't know that it's modulated by the phase, but it's correlated with the phase of beta activity. So there's a relationship between the two. Um, so that's another measure that 
the strength of that relationship between the beta phase and the high frequency amplitude is higher in Parkinson's disease and reduced by therapies. Um, so that's another potential marker. Um, another marker that we haven't personally looked at as much, but that's gotten um, a lot of excitement right now in the sort of Parkinson's and the motor field in general is um, this measure that's called beta bursts. So the basic idea is that instead of just looking at beta power um, kind of collapsed over time, which is the traditional way to look at it, you actually sort of set a threshold and quantify beta as occurring in these bursts. And in the last few years, this um, approach has gotten really popular because um, it was kind of observed that, you know, I described beta activity as changing with kind of decreasing with movement and then increasing after movement. But when you actually look at the raw signal, um, that's, you know, that is true, that's what happens on average. But when you look at individual trials, what really happens is that beta tends to occur in these short bursts. And those bursts are much more likely to occur when you're not moving than when you're moving. So when you average all those signals, you kind of see this um, you know, level that then decreases when you move and then increases afterwards. But um, that's not really how the um, individual trials look. And in fact, there's been some uh, papers that have shown that if you actually take information about these individual bursts, that relates a lot more closely to measures like reaction time than the um, average beta activity. Um, and in Parkinson's disease, there's sort of this emerging idea that these bursts tend to be of longer duration um, in the Parkinson's patients than in, um, in non-Parkinsonian populations. So um, the idea being that maybe, kind of like I said before, this synchrony might be more persistent in these patients. So it's more difficult to kind of enter into these phases where there's less likely to be a beta burst and movement tends to occur in these phases. Um, so that's another measure that we're really interested in. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, not at all. Uh, so I was just wanting to clarify. So, so, so these beta bursts are basically occurring right before there's movement. So, so the increased length of the beta burst in these, these Parkinsonian patients, is that indicating that they're, they're having more trouble potentially like initiating movement or am I, am I misunderstanding? Um, I think that's essentially correct. So it's, it's, I would just say it's not necessarily right before it's basically any time when they're not moving. So if you just look at periods where people are still, um, you're likely to see just instances of beta bursting in, in that period. But as they start to move, you'll see these bursts becoming less likely to occur. But I think your intuition is right that because we see these bursts being longer in Parkinson's patients, that could potentially um, be related to why we see them having more difficulty starting to move. So um, you can imagine, and, and this has a, it's kind of still like in the theoretical stage, uh, but the idea would be, you know, if you were in a beta burst and then suddenly you were told to move, it might be more difficult or it might take you longer to move than if you weren't in a beta burst uh, period. So they seem to kind of occur spontaneously, um, but if they're occurring for longer, as, as is the case in these patients, um, it might make movement delayed, for example. Okay. Uh, 
So that's uh, one of the other measures we're interested in. Got it. Have there, have there been any particular findings that, that have come out of your research that have been really surprising to you? Anything like related to, to movement in the brain? Anything that, that you were really just caught off guard by? Um, I think that I, I was a little bit surprised um, that all of these, so um, a lot of the work I did as a postdoc and as a graduate student were, um, you know, not only using scalp EEG, but also using these invasive techniques. And in fact, that's also, um, I didn't really get into this, but my lab also collaborates with neurosurgeons up at Oregon Health and Science University um, in Portland to continue to get these uh, invasive uh, brain recordings from patients undergoing neurosurgery. So a lot of these findings that I mentioned related to Parkinson's disease, um, so the waypoint and the the interaction between um, the beta phase and the high frequency activity, and even this beta bursting, all were initially shown in, um, in invasive recordings, so not at the scalp. And so I think that um, traditionally, there's been sort of a, a sense that um, these scalp EEG recordings were potentially just not sensitive enough to really detect these kinds of differences. Um, and so when I first started, you know, I, I basically was working with this invasive data um, and seeing some of these signals in the cortex. And, you know, we think that cortex is really what we're recording from, um, at least primarily when we see signals in EEG. So, um, and, and fortunately, motor signals, um, sensory motor activity especially, is quite prominent in the EEG. So when we started seeing some of these signatures in motor cortex with the intracranial data, um, the invasive data, it made me wonder, you know, could these potentially be um, apparent in this, the EEG data as well? Um, but I was surprised how clear they were. So I, I really thought that um, I kind of had always been taught that, that, uh, that EEG was less sensitive and that we might not be able to really distinguish these differences. So um, I was surprised that we were able to so clearly see um, these differences between patients and control groups, um, healthy control groups, and also between patients on and off therapies, even using this method that's, um, you know, fairly distant from the, the neural source. So when we put electrodes on the surface of people's scalp, you know, we're, we're not recording from the brain at all. So. Um, so that, I guess, was kind of a surprise to me that, um, that the signals looked, looked so similar in many ways to what we were seeing um, in the invasive data. That is interesting, right? Well, how about uh, as far as going forward, when you look into the, the future of what, what you guys uh, are wanting to research, what, what most uh, excites you both, I guess, in your own research uh, research plans along with just uh, research that you pay attention to coming out of other labs what what are some of the most exciting uh, uh, sort of upcoming research projects um, I think that some of the so I think that I'm really excited for some of the new ways that just in the neuroscience electrophysiology field in general some of the new ways we're approaching signal processing because I think that for years we were really doing a lot of the same approaches and we were learning a lot from using them, 
Um, but more and more, there's been an emphasis towards recognizing that there are other ways to capture aspects of the signals, which may tell us um, tell us potentially more or just different things than the conventional methods. So I think that this movement towards novel ways to quantify signals is really kind of an exciting time to be doing this work because um, I think it really opens up a lot of new things that can be done. And then I think separately, so that's kind of the basic science aspect that I'm really excited about. Um, and so that's a question in my lab we're addressing both using the EEG approaches and this invasive, the invasive recordings that we're getting um, in collaboration with surgeons. Um, and then clinically, I'm really interested in the idea that we might actually be able to, to potentially help patients by, um, by sort of kind of in conjunction with these new ways to, to do signal processing, maybe find new ways to identify um, potential biomarkers and then potentially integrate them into therapies to improve the therapy. So uh, one project I worked on prior to coming at UFO when I was a postdoc, we actually looked at a different electrophysiological measure and found that it related really strongly to a certain, um, actually a symptom of um, or sorry, rather a side effect of some of the Parkinson's disease medications that a lot of the patients were taking. Um, so we would see, you know, patients would get these uh, side effects from the medication and we saw this really striking neural signature when they're experiencing these side effects. And so what we did was we actually um, used an approach where we would, um, these were patients who were receiving deep brain stimulation as a therapy. And when we detected the signature occurring, we would decrease the stimulation um, with the idea that maybe we could lessen this side effect. Um, and so we did this in real time. And um, the idea is that you could actually potentially get better uh, treatment control. So that was really, um, really the goal. And also um, decrease the battery usage. So um, for patients, at least now, most of the time, when they need a new DBS battery, so deep brain stimulation battery, it is a surgery to, to get that done. Um, it's a fairly minor outpatient surgery, but um, it is a surgery, and so it's something that you know isn't taken lightly. So um, being able to save battery and maintain clinical efficacy, which is what we showed in our um, small uh, demonstration, um, would be a huge benefit. And I think that in some patients, our hope and the goal is that it could actually potentially give better um, ultimate treatment response and kind of better quality of life by kind of giving this personalized approach where you could adjust the therapy in real time to maximize the therapeutic benefit and minimize the side effects. Very cool. Well, awesome. Dr. Swan, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you today. If, uh, if people want to find out more about uh, your work, uh, your guys' projects at the lab, where would you direct them to? Um, yeah, I would definitely check out our website through the University of Oregon. Um, you can find it through the, I'm in the Department of Human Physiology, so if you check out the department website, you can link directly to our website. Uh, I think it's swanlab.uoregon.edu. Um, I believe, and uh, we have our most recent papers, some of our news, and just who's in the lab. Um, hopefully, once 
the COVID situation improves a little bit, we'll also be looking for participants to be in our experiment, especially uh, patient participants when we start this, this study kind of looking over time at, um, at movement disorder patients. So um, definitely we'll be excited to start um, when it's safe for everyone, um, bringing patients in the lab and hopefully uh, you know, learning something that could help those populations. Um, and yeah, so I think that's the main way to kind of learn what we have going on. Great. Awesome. Well, um, for those of you guys who enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're Roscoe's Wetsuit. And you can also find audio versions of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else you can watch audio or listen to audio podcasts. Um, also, go ahead and just check out all of the above at Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast.com. Again, Dr. Swan, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right.